Hi, I'm Vashi Kapelos and welcome to the West Block podcast for Sunday, November 12th. This week, we'll talk to Environment Minister Catherine McKenna about Canada's climate commitments. Then, Jason Kenney, the newly minted leader of the United Conservative Party, about the political controversy in Alberta surrounding Bill 24. Plus, offshore tax shelters. What is the government doing about them? But first, it's been nearly two years since the government signed on to the Paris Climate Agreement, and critics charge Canada is already falling behind on its commitment to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Diplomats around the world are gathering in Germany to set rules and guidelines for nations to meet their climate targets. What will Canada bring to the table? Joining me now is Environment Minister Catherine McKenna. Thanks so much for being with us on the program, Minister. I appreciate it. Nice it's to see you. It's great to be here. Uh, I want to start off by asking about a report released late last month from the UN, and it asserted two things. First of all, that Canada isn't on track to meeting its 2030 emissions targets. And secondly, even if we were, it wouldn't be enough to meet the goal established at the with the Paris Climate Agreement. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, so, for the first one, no. Uh, we have a climate plan. We negotiate it with the provinces and territories, and it's across the board plan. So it's everything from putting a price on carbon pollution, phasing out coal, net zero building standards, historic investments in public transit. In Ottawa, just the investment in public transit, the second phase of LRT is the largest reduction in Ottawa's history, uh, and investments to support clean tech entrepreneurs. But it takes time for these policies to have effect, and our target is a 2030 target. So we just negotiated the plan last year. We're working across the board. We're working with provinces, and we're going to meet our target. In terms of, you know, all of the whole world being able to keep uh, temperatures well below 2 degrees, we have more work to do. And that's the benefit of the Paris Agreement. It has an ability every, you know, every five years you have to come back. You have to ratchet up the ambition. So everyone needs to be doing more. We know that. Um, I'm going to be in Bonn next week uh, for the International Climate Talks. And one of the things we're doing is working with countries, including the U.K., to get a phase out of coal. We know that we need that coal is one of the most polluting substances, uh, that it's a huge source of greenhouse gas emissions. And so if we can bring the world together, we know renewables, uh, the solar and wind, a lot cheaper now, that if we can work with countries around the world and phase out coal, that would be a huge uh, improvement in terms of our, our ambition. Let me uh, pick up on the second part of your answer about meeting the, the Paris uh, target or, or achieving the Paris goal. When you talk about sort of ratcheting up, uh, uh, heading towards that goal, I guess your first opportunity to do that would probably be in 2020. Um, in, so just to be clear, would you consider additional measures at that point? So we're always looking at additional measures. But to be clear, we need to be working with provinces and territories. It's not like, you know, the federal government can just come in and say we're going to do this without without working with provinces and territories. So we're going to continue doing that. Um, you know, we have, as, a, as I said, we have a cross-the-board plan. Um, you know that we know that we have to reduce emissions from industry, um, from the way we build houses and buildings, um, for a transportation sector. So we're always working on what policies can we do, what investments can we make? We know that uh, investing in innovation so that Canadian businesses are part of the solution. We have amazing entrepreneurs that are providing solutions that we're exporting. We need to do it across the board. We need to be thoughtful. And I've always said the environment and the economy go together. So whatever policies we bring in, we not only have to do with the provinces, we need to do it in a way that we're making sure that we're moving forward in a transition, but in an orderly way. And so that's always my goal, working very hard with environmentalists, but also with industry. Do you anticipate, though, 
know in 2020 you will have to be more aggressive in the targets that you set. I mean, everyone is looking, every country around the world is looking at what more they can do. Um, as I but say, that doesn't really answer. Like, uh, well, you no, think just Canada have to be? I think everyone needs to be ratcheting up the ambition. So that's what that's part of the Paris Agreement process, and mm -hmm. we're absolutely committed to that. I am more committed to supporting other countries. So developing countries um, who really didn't cause a problem and uh, need support, we need to be working with them as well. So it's a cross-the-board solution. It's every country doing their part and everyone working together. We're totally committed, and you're going to see different pieces. You know, as we come out with uh, our, our, our um, uh, a net zero um, vehicle strategy. There's all these different parts of how you can move forward. And, uh, and you know, we have to do it in a thoughtful manner, though. As I've always said, working with provinces, territories is really key. How much does it weigh on you, um, you know, the, the potential impact of, of the targets that you set or the policies that you pursue, especially in a sector, for example, like the oil patch? You know, obviously, there will be a lot of consequences there. How much a part of the calculation is that for you? I've always said I'm the environment minister as much for energy workers as I am for environmentalists. We work extremely closely with uh, industry, including energy companies in Alberta. And so we all need to be working together. This is a transition. So our target is a 2030 target, right? This isn't all going to happen overnight. And we need to be doing everything in a thoughtful way. And you need to do key pieces. So putting a price on pollution, we've been very firm on that. You need to say that polluting isn't free. We're seeing the very real impacts of climate change across the country. Um, we've seen flooding. We've seen forest fires. We're seeing uh, melting permafrost. Prince Edward Island is, is receding by 43 centimeters a year. So we all know we need to be acting. Um, and we need to be acting together. And that's always my goal. I work extremely hard to bring different groups together. Uh, I think we're much better together working with indigenous peoples, working with industry, working with environmentalists, with provinces, with cities. And I think that's a model for the world. Quite frankly, we're not seeing the divisions um, on climate change. Canadians have been very clear that they want to see action in climate change, that they know it's real, that they know it's man-made. And so we're all moving along. And I think that that's a great message. And that's the message I'm going to be bringing uh, to the climate talks. I'm going to show Canada's leadership uh, domestically and also, you know, helping to support the rest of the world, uh, that, you know, countries that really want to move forward that need support. Finally, though, when you say that we are on track to achieving, that Canada is on track mm -hmm. to achieving its 2030 targets, uh, are you saying that the UN report is wrong? Because I know that your department released a report in April of this year asserting the same thing. Uh, no, we have a target. I mean, we have the, the, the path to the target. So, I mean, the, what is strange about this report is our target is 2030. So emissions, we, we're just bringing just in too early pieces to of policies. Well, if you think about the second phase of LRT, we're just starting to build it, right? If you talk about putting a price in pollution, it's coming in in 2018. I mean, obviously, there are some things that are immediately, you know, that you'll see immediate benefits, um, and including supporting some amazing companies, Carbon Cure out of Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. We we help support it. The government helps support it. It now is reducing the footprint of cement, and it's being used in cement factories around the world. So there are steps that happen immediately. But the big changes, like phasing out coal, putting a price on pollution, the investments in public transportation, they just take a while before you can actually see the reductions. And as I say, the target is a 2030 target. And of course, we all know we need to be doing better. And I would just say that you can't show leadership on the international stage unless you're doing work at home. And people recognize countries around 
the world recognize that Canada is standing firm, that we're taking a leadership role, that the U.S. administration has stepped back and we've stepped up. And we're going to continue pushing because we only have one planet. And it's not just about Canada. It's about what's happening in the rest of the world. Uh, I saw an Inuit leader talking to a leader of a small island state. And I mean, he said, look, my homeland is melting and it's causing yours to flood. And that is the reality with climate change. We're all interconnected and we all need to be acting. Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time, Minister. Nice Great. to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Bill 24 in Alberta is causing a showdown between the NDP and their conservative rivals. The bill would prohibit teachers from telling parents if their son or daughter joins a gay-straight alliance club. New Democrats say the bill is necessary to provide protection for children and give them a safe club. But the UCP says parents need to know. And joining us now from Calgary is newly minted UCP leader Jason Kenney. Mr. Kenney, thanks for being on the program and congratulations on your win. Thank you very much. I wanted to start off, sir, by asking you about Bill 24. Why don't you support it? Well, uh, because I support the current law in Alberta that the NDP and every party's voted for, the status quo in every Canadian province, which basically means that uh, we support gay-straight alliances and peer support for uh, kids who are going through bullying or preju facing prejudice. Um, and But we think that every child is unique, every circumstance is different, particularly given that this is a legislation that applies to children as young as the age of five in kindergarten, and some of whom uh, have, some kids of these kids have special needs or have faced trauma or emotional difficulties, and we think that educators are in a better position to exercise their professional discretion and judgment to know when it's in the best interest of a child to engage parents, rather than politicians making that decision for them. My understanding, though, is under Bill 24, teachers would still have the ability, if they felt like someone's safety was in jeopardy or, you know, they were suicidal, for example, to reach out to parents. Is that That's incorrect? Not a, no, that's not at all clear. And uh, the reality is we're just supporting the status quo that the NDP supported until last week, um, which is uh, to trust the professional judgment of educators to know when it's in the best interest of the child to engage parents in, in difficult circumstances. Um, and that's the same policy in Ontario and right across the country. But teachers, for example, represented by the Alberta Teachers Association, the Calgary School Board, the Calgary uh, Catholic School Board, all say that they're supportive of the bill, that it wouldn't hinder their ability if they felt like there was a safety concern to talk to parents. So I just want to be clear on exactly why you think the bill is so problematic. Well, I don't, a lot of teachers who don't agree with that view. And uh, again, I, I think that uh, leaving uh, some discretion to educators is smarter than using the blunt instrument of law, which is precisely why the NDP didn't propose these changes before. Uh, no other province has done so. Uh, it's just common sense uh, to allow for uh, professional discretion in these in these unique circumstances, like for example, the 12-year-old autistic girl I know who was uh, put into counseling for uh, her gender identity without knowledge of her parents and ended up uh, uh, committing uh, or trying to commit self-harm. Um, the school later admitted they should have engaged the parents. So I, th I think we need to know that, that sometimes it is in the best interest of the child for parents to provide loving support to their children, and educators are in a better position to assess those in in circumstances than politicians. But didn't that case, that example that you brought up, didn't that happen without Bill 24 anyway? Uh, yes, precisely. The point is that they thought, thought they were following the guidelines of the NDP minister not to inform or engage parents. And, and I just think that it's, uh, it's better to engage parents. Also, uh, this bill would remove the requirement of parental notification for 
uh, teaching uh, sensitive matters around human sexuality, which is uh, uh, supposed to, I, I think GSH is supposed to be a peer support club, not um, a kind of an alternative classroom. So we want to ensure that parents uh, do have that knowledge so they can uh, help their kids, uh, uh, you know, in learning difficult, uh, difficult issues about, uh, about ethics and so forth. But do you have any evidence, I guess, that GSAs are actually teaching that type of curriculum or anything other than a support group? Yeah, well, the Alberta Teachers Association says that uh, GSAs can include um, the uh, educational uh, activities, school-wide educational activities, political activities, curriculum, uh, and so forth. So we're simply saying... If I it thought it was just advocation areas, for changes to, to the curriculum, not necessarily a different curriculum being taught. Well, a curric curriculum mean curriculum material, and uh, uh, right now the law has always required that parents be notified if, if something's being taught to kids in a school, and we're, we're simply suggesting there's no reason to change that. What if a teacher doesn't really understand what's going on in the home? And I guess, you know, I think of certain examples of kids who uh, are having a lot of trouble coming out to their families because maybe their, their family is of a certain uh, religion right. and, and doesn't believe homosexuality so, is right. And as I, as you know I what I mean? Like, from what would you say to them? I would say that then they shouldn't inform the parents. And that's, I think, the normal status quo. Teachers understand uh, they have a professional duty to maintain confidentiality for their uh, students, and unless there's an extraordinary circumstance in which uh, uh, it's in the best interest of the child to, to engage parents, particularly for younger children. There's a whole judicial uh, or jurisprudential doctrine around mature minors, which recognizes that as children can become younger, they're less capable of exercising independent judgment. And this does apply to children as young as the age of five in kindergarten. So we do think there should be some sensitivity around uh, particularly kids who are much younger. So why not, instead of just opposing the bill, introduce an amendment that focuses on just what you said? Uh, we have. And what does that amendment say specifically? Well, we, so one of the amendments that we brought forward was to uh, continue the current legislation that requires parental consent on, on these uh, on teaching kids uh, uh, material dealing with sec uh, human sexuality. We've also asked the government to exclude elementary schools, but they've chosen not to. So what happens from here? Will this be, I know uh, last week when you described your, your opposition to the bill, you said it was unanimous opposition. Uh, will this be a free vote? What happens going forward? No, I don't think I said unanimous, but I, do, I think our caucus st uh, strongly believes in the position we've articulated, which is the status quo, the same position that the NDP supported until a week ago, um, the same position in every other province, the same position that was adopted unanimously by all Alberta parties just three years ago in our legislature. Uh, but, but these matters are subject to a free vote in our caucus, and uh, uh, I would certainly respect if, M if MLAs have a, a conscientious view, they want to vote differently, I would respect that. But I think uh, there's a strong consensus in our caucus that the, the current law is, is serving Alberta children well. I guess uh, before we go, I just wanted to ask, you know, if, if there are uh, Albertans and kids watching that are worried, regardless of the politics, I know that both sides there are politics playing into this, but watching and feeling like, um, you know, they're going to be outed, that your party would prefer that they be outed uh, to their parents or that they won't have sort of any right to privacy around, around their sexual orientation, what do you say to them? We, what we say is what I've said from the very beginning with absolute clarity that we oppose that in every uh, that's a ridiculous thing to suggest that to teachers and educators have a duty of confidentiality if a child informs them of uh, personal information just like high school counselors do 
um, but that there can be unique circumstances, particularly with younger children, uh, where they really do need the loving support of their families if they're going through a time of difficulty, and uh, that we should leave it to the discretion of educators to exercise their professional judgment in such cases. But uh, uh, we support GSAs and the peer support they can give kids, particularly those who are going through difficult circumstances. Okay, thanks very much for your time, Mr. Kenny. Thank you. The government took more heat in the House of Commons last week as leaks from the confidential offshore financial records for companies and individuals with alleged tax havens revealed millions lost from unclaimed taxes. Liberal fundraiser Stephen Bronfman is accused of being among the culprits. So what is the government doing about it? Joining me now from Vancouver is Carla Qualtro, Minister of Public Services and Procurement. Minister, thanks for joining us. I appreciate well, it. Thank you for having me. Minister, when the Prime Minister accepted Liberal fundraiser Stephen Bronfman's explanation with respect to sheltering his money offshore, was Justin Trudeau putting himself in the middle of the investigation and sort of predetermining what the outcome of it would be? I personally wouldn't say so, no. I mean, I'm not in a position to talk about individual circumstances, and, and people have come out with their own um, statements with regard to their involvement in tax havens. But I can assure you, I have every confidence in the CRA that they are con conducting independent investigations, uh, both proactively and reactively, with regards to the Paradise Papers. I guess, though, for Canadians listening, if the Prime Minister says, you know, whatever Stephen Bronfen said, I accept, is the CRA really going to find something else out? Oh, absolutely, 100%. I mean, the CRA has a number of different tools and tactics at its disposal, and we've invested quite significantly in beefing up the CRA in the past couple of years. And, and you know, I can assure you there's no double standard. Nobody is above the law. You know, wherever these investigations lead, um, they will follow. Why wouldn't the Prime Minister have said that? Um, you know, again, I can't comment on what the Prime Minister said or why he said it, um, but I can tell you, I, I mean, personally for myself, I have no reason to believe that what is on the face value people are saying isn't true, but that's not my job. I mean, it's the job of the CRA independently to pursue this and follow anything wherever it leads them, and I have every confidence that they will. That investigation that they're pursuing, is there a timeline for that, Minister? I don't think there is a timeline. I mean, there's a number of individuals. I know they're, they're pursuing it kind of vigorously, just like um, they're pursuing other more proactive uh, initiatives. I can tell you that just in the past year alone, we've sent over 600 cases to criminal investigation. We've issued um, hundreds of search warrants. There's been over 100 uh, criminal prosecutions. We take international tax evasion and avoidance really seriously. What, I guess, what form will their investigation take? At the end of the day, when they do conclude it, whenever that is, will the findings be made public? You know, I, I honestly don't know the exact details of their process or their procedures. All I know is um, what they are committed to doing is independently following up on any specific lead and then taking action accordingly. If that leads to a fine or a criminal investigation, I think it's a little premature to tell. So we won't really know then, for example, if Mr. Bronfen did anything wrong, unless they decide to fine him? Unless they fine him or unless it leads to a criminal prosecution, which would, of course, then be public. If charges are laid, the, the, any criminal charges are public. So any fine levied would also be made public? I, that's what I assume, but I don't actually know the answer to that 100%. I'm wondering when it comes to the larger problem, I guess, of people using offshore tax havens to avoid paying Canadian taxes. I know your government has invested a billion dollars uh, and, and recouped quite a bit of money doing so, yep. but still, since then, there have been now the Paradise Papers. So yep. is more needed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we can always do more. And I think you will see us 
you know, again, beefing up and increasing CRA's capacity. Um, what they did last year, for example, was they targeted four specific jurisdictions, including the Isle of Man, and they looked at every single electronic transfer, every, um, you know, kind of high-risk transfer that may have happened to determine what's going on, and that has yielded results. I mean, if you look at um, 2014, under the Conservatives, there were 98 closed audits internationally. Last year, for us, there was 220-something. So we've definitely beefed up our, our interest and focus on inter international tax evasion. Do you think, though, that either more money or more tools, perhaps in a legislative capacity, could be necessary? Like, are you, are you open to that possibility? Well, again, the Minister of Revenue and Finance are probably the better person to ask about the public policy side and the legislative piece, but I, I absolutely think we can always do more, and if there are more tools at our disposal, we can do the jobs better. Uh, you know, we, we, of course, asked for them to appear on the program, but instead the government uh, provided uh, you as an interview for this subject. So that's why I'm asking, you know, Absolutely. I, I guess we are wondering, are there specific things that the government is pursuing or is it sort of status quo where, we're, you know, we're trying hard, we've invested a billion dollars, that's where we're leaving it, or will you do more? Well, all, you know, what I can say is we are doing more. Just by virtue of hiring more auditors, we're going after tax, um, uh, tax, uh, people who go and, and advise people on non-compliance were going. So $44 million in fines for tax um, people who help people avoid taxes last year. Um, we're definitely doing more, 100%. Okay, we'll leave it there, Minister. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. And finally, on this Remembrance Day weekend, we pay tribute to the men and women who served in the military and to Silver Cross mother Diana Abel. Here's her story. My son was Michael David Abel, he was 27 years old, and he was on Operation Deliverance in Somalia when he was killed. He was a goofball. Um, he, uh, he loved cars, he loved motorcycles. He was a great one for helping people. He loved kids, he was involved with kids in Somalia. It was an accident, it's an accidental shooting. We were away, we were up island at the time visiting my mother, so we came home and there was a note on our, on our door and multi-messages to get in touch with someone. We made the phone call and this voice on the other end says, there's been an accident and of course the first question was, well, is he okay? No, he's dead. You have one hour to Tell your family, and then it is being released to the press. Thank you. Goodbye. It, it means a lot to me. People say, is this going to be a form of closure? It's not closure that I'm looking for. It's, it's the actual representation of all Silver Cross mothers that I'm looking for, and also to honor the members of my son's regiment. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thank you for listening to the West Block Podcast. For more, go to our website, thewestblock.ca. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And tune in again next week for another West Block Podcast.